Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's very important for you to think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to. Being flexible in your thinking is sometimes hard, but really important because the minute people don't feel like there's flexibility on the other side, they become defensive. And once you become defensive, then it's much harder to be happy. That was Edith Eager and Marianne Engel on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To all those who celebrate it, happy Thanksgiving. We're excited to bring this episode, which celebrates family togetherness, even when it's complicated, and which also celebrates the opportunity to find gifts, sometimes in the most surprising of places. I'm here with my mom, Devorah Chatov, to introduce this episode. And the reason that I'm having my mom here today is that I had the chance to interview a mother-daughter duo, Dr. Edith Eager and her daughter, Dr. Marianne Engel. A little bit of backstory, Dr. Edith Eager was born in Hungary and in her teens was an Olympic-level gymnast, but because she was Jewish, she was taken off the Olympic team, and shortly after that, she and her family were sent to the Auschwitz concentration camps. At the concentration camps, she lost her mother and her father and endured many, many horrific atrocities. 
What's amazing about her story is that she became a clinical psychologist and she actually uses her past, her painful past, to help other people heal. My own mom became absolutely taken with Edie's story and her work and kept sending me videos and quotes and writing from Edie. And I thought the material was amazing, but it wasn't until Edie's publicist reached out to me that I thought I would have a chance to speak with her. She's a 95-year-old Auschwitz survivor, and again, what's so amazing is that I got to speak with both her and her daughter. So I'm here today with my mom, and I wanted to just kind of start by asking you, Mom, why were you so taken with Edie's message? I was taken by Edie's message because of her accomplishment and her strong character to overcome all the atrocities that she went through. And in spite of her uh, being so young and didn't, didn't finish her education, she came to the United States and in her 40s, she started school and accomplished a lot. And in spite of all the hardship she went through. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she really did not let any of the tragedies that she experienced and the trauma that she lives with, the post-traumatic stress disorder that she continues to live with, um, stop her. She she has really still managed to take life by the reins and make such a powerful difference for so many people. One thing, Mom, that really struck me about her story and about the conversation that I had with her and her daughter, Marianne, was them talking about what it was like to be an immigrant parent and what it was like to be raised by an immigrant parent. So you and dad came to the United States after you married and you didn't know a word of English. And I wondered if, as you listened to the episode, you thought a little bit about what it was like for you as a young mom, as an immigrant. And if you sort of had that thought too of how some of some parts of their story really parallel our own. Uh, yes and no. What I, what I was uh, very impressed with is their connection and the love between them and the appreciation that they have to each, for each other. Not as much as the struggling of a new immigrant, as much as, you know, the love and the connection. Yeah, I was struck by that too and how how much they just really appreciated and enjoyed each other. They had this very like teasing and loving relationship where Edie would say something to Marianne like you have to do this and Marianne would kind of push back and a couple of times Marianne sort of pointed out but we don't agree on that. It was cute, yeah. right? That was really lovely to see that in spite of the disagreement they still appreciate and share yeah. Well, what what was the biggest take home for you, either from the conversation that I had with Edie and Marianne or from what you've read uh, from the work of Edie? What, what's sort of your big take home message that you want to leave our listeners with? That she always plan for the next day. She, she There is always meaning for her life. She always excited about life and about the next day. And she doesn't uh, live in the past. She always plan for the future. Yeah. Something that I think in old age, a lot of people just don't have the capacity to think about tomorrow. They just worry about tomorrow. Yeah, it's amazing. At 95, she still has plans for a new book and she was showing me some of the things that she's working on. It really is. It's so inspirational. That's very inspirational that she you know, she always is excited about the next day. And even you can see it in the way she dress up, always very colorful and always very happy. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, we hope that all of you out there get as much from Edie and Marianne as my mom and I did, and that it inspires you to look forward with optimism to tomorrow and to find meaning in today. Dr. Edith Eager is a sought-after clinical psychologist and lecturer who brings a message of healing and personal growth in her speaking and in her wonderful books, The Choice and the Gift. 
She uses her past as a Holocaust survivor and thriver to inspire people to tap their full potential and shape their very best destinies regardless of their circumstances. It's a message of choice to move from recovery to discovery and beyond, and encouragement to find the gifts even in the most painful of situations. Dr. Eager's daughter, Dr. Marianne Engel, also joins us today. She is a talented psychologist in her own right and watched her mother undergo her healing processes when she was a young girl. In fact, Dr. Eager didn't tell her about the experiences in the Holocaust, but Marianne discovered it by finding a book in her parents' collection and put the pieces together. They are an inspiring mother-daughter duo working together to bring healing and positivity to the world, and we'll be focusing on the messages offered in the newest edition of Dr. Eager's book, The Gift, 14 Lessons to Save Your Life, which is colored by Marianne's influence, I'm told. Welcome. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I also actually wanted to share that this interview is particularly special for me personally. My mother was absolutely captivated, Edie, by your books and talks. She kept sending me YouTube videos of you on the TED stage talking to Oprah and so on. I actually figured you were way too big of a deal for me to talk to. So when your publicist reached out to me, I thought I'd kind of hit the jackpot of good luck. So I also think my mother has never been so impressed with anything I've done before. I love that. So I hope we get to talk a lot about mother-daughter interactions today. Absolutely. They change over time. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with you, Edie. In your writing, you talk not only of your time as a concentration camp prisoner, but also of the dangers of being trapped in the concentration camp of your mind. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners, what do you mean by the concentration camp of your mind? I think that people talk to themselves and use two words, always and never. I'm never going to find a good man. I'm always going to be a victim. And uh, and I think uh, self-talk can totally change your whole body chemistry. So I think uh, it's very important for you to think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to. Anything you pay attention to, you reinforce that behavior that you want to extinguish. You have this one line in your books that I absolutely love. You write that victims ask, why me? While survivors ask, what now? I wonder if you can talk about this the power of this simple shift in language. I think Auschwitz was a classroom where I learned uh, not to say, why me? And uh, I did ask, does anyone know that I'm here? I felt so lonely. I felt I was just thrown out because I did something wrong. And I unfortunately didn't realize that um, that's not the way to talk to myself. I have to say to myself, what now? And how can I keep myself to find hope in hopelessness? And here I am to tell you about it. So it worked. And that's the evidence right here. So you write in your books that you spent a lot of years, Edie, hiding your past from your children, including Marianne. And Marianne, looking back on your childhood now, I'm curious if you have insights into what the costs and benefits were to you as a daughter to have your mother trying to protect you from her painful history. Well, I love the question. Thank you for that. And I am very grateful, really, that she did protect me. Because even though we were thrown out of our country, we escaped, lost everything. You know, my mother, my father's family was one of the most powerful, wealthy families. And we came to the U.S. with zero. I didn't feel that. I felt I had my parents who loved me. We had been in Vienna. I learned some German. Um, you know, to me, life felt like a big adventure. And I think my mother and father were very protective. And I'm grateful for that because now that I've moved to New York and I've met a lot of Holocaust survivors, kids, we're not kids anymore, but you know, and um, they talk about how every dinner was spent talking about what, what was before the war? What was this? What suffering? Who did you lose? I am so grateful that I didn't have to have that be part of my own childhood and that when it came to me that I felt such empathy for 
my mother and, and her sister and curious about the story. And, and then when my mother finally, you know, I became a psychologist long before she did. And uh, just to be clear, and she went to college when I was uh, getting my PhD. I mean, you know, and, and her bravery and always pushing ahead. And then when she went to Auschwitz and came back, she was a changed person. She really was. She, she went from being kind of, oh, there was always a little bit of depression behind her eyes to being ha joyous, happy, relieved. And um, so I'm, I'm very grateful, actually, for the way this happened. It, yeah. uh, for me, it, it worked. Uh, I, there are a couple of questions I'd like to perhaps mention. And the first one is, when did your childhood end? And if you look at survivors' children... So we disagree on this. Interesting. I, I, think, I, I think the word I come up with is parentage. I think she taught me how to speak English. She brought home a book called Chicken Little Goosey Lucy and Turkey Lurkey, and I didn't know one from the other. So I think I think she grew up very fast, and uh, it was her who really became my teacher and taught me how to speak English. But it didn't hurt her any, you know, because she graduated with honors, and uh, even the daycare center lady called me, Mrs. Bowers, that when a child is crying, they send Marianne, who is two years old, to take care of the other kid, not to cry, and so she was already a caregiver at such a young age. Marianne, how do you disagree with that? Yeah. No, thank you. You know, I disagree because my mother always feels that there's something she has to apologize for about my having to be an adult yeah. child early. Whereas I feel like the benefit was that, I mean, I think being an adult has been pretty terrific for me anyway. And, and, and I, I was pretty successful most of my life. And I feel like, you know, I do think that children of immigrants when they have parents who are well-educated and really push their kids in, in a positive way. I don't remember. I mean, actually, to be perfectly honest, my mother and father never knew what my homework was. <laughs> so thank God I was smart because, you know, it was not like, like we do today with our children where we know every assignment they have and all this stuff. They never knew anything. And every once in a while, they find a paper I'd written and my mother would be over the moon and, and like, oh, my God, she can do that. And but, you know, I was responsible and and I took it. And I, I don't see that that was uh, harmful to me. I feel like it was actually, um, you know, made me who I am. Yeah. yeah. And, and the people that I mention in my books of my patients, I consult with Dr. Engel, and uh, she's a brilliant consultant, and tell me when to shut up and when to <laughs> be a compassionate listener, which is the hardest thing to do. What do you think drew you both to the field of clinical psychology? So um, we ha I have a brother who from birth on has had his limitations, and watching my mother deal with him. And then when I would take him to his therapist, um, I got to see a lot of what happened there. And I didn't think it was what I wanted to major in, actually, so I didn't. But uh, I did uh, uh, speech therapy, that kind of thing. And then I also did political science, which I adored. Um and right, and I, I graduated from college early, and I got myself into graduate school with the top person in the country and all that stuff. And then I realized I really wasn't that interested in the, in the speech. I was interested in the mind. And then, so I, that was research psychology. And the more that I did that, the more I realized um, I wanted both. So I actually did both, and I taught at UCSD for a while. And did research, and I, I mean, I was good at it. It was fine. I mean, I I did very well, but it really wasn't fun. Whereas 
being with patients was fun. So I retrained and I adore my career. Um, I also do sports psychology. And so I work with athletes all over the world. And that's really fun, too. Um, I think psychology is the best. And I think my mother, uh, when she went back to when she went to school and graduated and she she I think she's always been a psychologist in her in her life. I mean, it's just the way she achieved as an athlete. I mean, she was an amazing athlete using her mind as well as her body. So I think for her, it was it was natural. I think for me, it was something that came bit by bit. Well, that's so interesting. I, I love that she followed your footsteps in getting a PhD. <laughs> well, it was, uh, <laughs> it was really something. So when I was pregnant with uh, my first child, my mother was um, busy working on her dissertation. And my daughter was three weeks late. And I said, you know, mom, you're going to be here when the baby's born, right? And she said, well, you know, I do have a meeting with my advisor and I'm going to do that. And then I'm like, what? What? Wait a minute. I'm having a baby here. I wanted to actually back up. So Marianne, you were saying that when your mother went to Auschwitz to revisit this place of trauma, she came back and it was as if something had lifted, right? It was sort of a change came over UED. And given that you're both psychologists, I'm kind of curious about this moment of change. Edie, you write in your books, we do not change until we're ready. And so I'm curious as therapists, as psychologists, how do we help people move towards that readiness? Well, I don't think uh, Hamlet was performed by Richard Burton overnight, I think you do something called rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing as long as you need to to be able to put yourself out there that is genuinely you. And then you can quote other people from wherever. Um, but I think I refer to people what happens with the unexpected and the unanticipated. And I begin to talk about Auschwitz as an opportunity for an opportunity to discover my inner self. But let me answer your question (laughs) also. (laughs) I think it was a good answer, rehearsal, but also seeing opportunities where it doesn't quite happen as opportunities to sort of prepare. Exactly. Exactly. When my mother, if you've read her books, started to treat these men who have post-traumatic stress syndrome, it was just then that she realized that she had it and that she couldn't go any further until she addressed her own. And then back uh, to Auschwitz. And there's a great story there because I did my junior year abroad at the University of Copenhagen and I lived with this lovely family. He was vice president of uh, the beer company there. And so it was, then they had five kids and it was, it, it was great. And when my mother wanted to go to Auschwitz, they were going to go to Copenhagen first and then go to Poland from there. And my date, so my um, Danish mother calls me up and says, I don't want your mother to go. We know people who have gone. They came back and died. It was too much for them to take. I think this is not going to be good for your mother. And I said to her, you don't know my mother. Um, If she's determined to do something, it's probably going to happen. And my dad will protect her. Don't stand in her way. (laughs) So then it turned out that uh, the America and Poland were having a fight. The communists were still in power then. And they forbid any Americans to come to Poland. So my mother goes to the Polish embassy in uh, Copenhagen and says to them, you're not going to let me in. Do you want to remember what you did to me? Da, 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 da. I'm going. And they said, okay, okay, you can go, you can go. So that's how she got there. So already this woman is ready <laughs> to face something. And my favorite, favorite story, and I think it's in the books, is that when she and my dad got there, they went walking around and then they went to the area where she had been. And there was a man walking by in uniform and she started to have that feeling of panic inside her. And then suddenly she realized 
that he had to stay there. It was his job, but she could leave. And she had an American passport in her pocket. And she, my father said, she danced out the door. And that's when it changed. Yeah. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's a beautiful story, isn't it? And I, I mean, you're sort of referring to this. And so for listeners who haven't read the books, I mean, you spent many years of your life, Edie, with, with sort of not being able to confront that truth. But by the time you were ready, you were ready. You were ready to sort of go there and, and not to say that it wasn't painful, but that you had sort of what you needed within you to confront a very painful past and to dance out of there. Yeah. I have... Uh... To tell you that I asked my sister to come with me because we lost our family and I never went to a funeral. I think Auschwitz is probably the biggest funeral place. Anyway, she told me I'm an idiot to to do that. So we went through the same experience, but very different responses. She also said she was an idiot to write these books. But when they were so successful... She then said, you know, I have a book in me, too. <laughs> and that was, it was very sweet. It was very sweet. But yeah. uh, my, mother's, my mother, in case you haven't guessed, is an incredibly brave woman. And um, you I know, like to write a book for teenagers, and I would like you to be, I know. please. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the next project. I'm getting no pressure. Have you noticed? <laughs> yeah, there's never pressure. Their daughters, I know that for sure. <laughs> but you know, anyway. So it's it's. There's actually a lot of stuff going on with that already. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, I want to hear more about that. Yeah. I want to actually just talk about close relationships in general. I mean, your your books talk a lot about you know either your relationship with your sister, parent-child relationships, and marital relationships, and obviously relationships were in a sense what got you through Auschwitz. Um, one point that you make is, and, and you're kind of referring to this with your sister Magda, who didn't want to go back and thought it was stupid to go, is that the key to maintaining freedom, this is a quote from your book, during conflict is to hold your truth while also relinquishing the need for power and control. And I think it's so brilliant, but it's an, it's such a complicated question to think about how to manifest that in real life. And so I wonder, how do you guide people when they say to you, you know, I have my truth and my partner has their truth and we can't figure out how to negotiate a compromise or find a way for us each to live in the way that feels right to us while still staying in a close relationship? What's your advice to people? I usually ask two questions. The first one is, when did your childhood end? Maria never had a childhood. She was a little adult. The second question is, would you like to be married to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a, it's a good way to approach yourself, whether uh, you're really happy with your life partner. At various phases in your married life, Edie, how would you have answered that question? Would you like to be married to yourself? I, th- I think what I'm going to tell you, what I think I, I experience in marriage is give and take and tolerating differences. Mm. Yeah. Hard to do. I think I have the best marriage and she was only 21. I was lucky. Yeah. You made the right guy, and then you actually follow up. Now kids, you know, in their 20s might meet the right person, but nobody feels like they can get married. And then that opportunity can pass them by, which I think is actually happening to a lot of women these days, a lot of women. And then they start to panic in their early 30s because they know they've got their biological clock too. They just had their 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Marianne, I actually, I wanted to ask you a specific question about marriages that um, Edie writes about in her book. So, you know, there's the problem of accommodating loved ones too much. And this is, you know, especially a problem for women. 
And I wonder, Marion, if you would be sh- willing to share the story that Edie writes about of you and your husband navigating independent time while having young children. <laughs> Do you know story. which story I'm talking about? I know which story you're talking about. So my husband, um, Rob Engel, who is quite successful in his own right. <laughs> got a Nobel Prize and all that. Um, all that. <laughs> I know. No, he's, he's, he's amazing. We just got back from a trip to Italy and he was on the newspapers and he's doing all this work on climate. And I, it's, he's so much fun to be married to. But he comes from a, um, or and, he comes from a Quaker family. And he had a one, I loved his father uh, and his mother, but their marriage was not great. There was not, um, there was respect and appreciation, but I don't know they knew how to have fun together. And um, his grandmother, so his father's mother, was a very tough, tough woman. And so he grew up, and, you know, I think there are men like this now, even though there were a lot more then, where if a woman did something that that was silly or they didn't like it, they would kind of even publicly say something cutting. And it was supposed to be funny, but, you know, it wasn't funny. And so there were some qualities that my husband had picked up from his dad. And fortunately, I mean, I, you know, he would do some things and I knew where they were coming from. And I would just sit him down and say, we're not doing that in our marriage. I know that's what you saw. You didn't like your parents' marriage. I love you. I do not want to have that kind of marriage. Don't do it anymore. <laughs> and, um, and there were things that, that he wanted me to change a little bit or not do, um, which was to um, want to go to too many parties. <laughs> Um, and I think that honesty from the beginning helped a tremendous amount. And I don't know where I got it in my head to do that, but I would, (laughs) I think it really worked well being honest right from the beginning. And, um, this is a man who loves to work. So we were just in Italy and we, I found a great place in, um, Sardinia that we could go to. And um, um, this is kind of the way we've worked life out that, you know, in the morning he gets up, he sits down at his computer, we'll have coffee and breakfast, but basically he works till noon or one and then he's mine. And I, and, and, and I use that as time for me to do stuff I want to do. And sometimes I, well, often I have work to do too, but I think every couple has to figure out what their, their, their drama looks like, you know, and, and to make it a fun thing. And some, and they're, you know, you're not always going to agree. Um, but to know that he will listen to me and I will listen to him makes a huge amount of difference. And not everybody's willing to do that. Um, and I think being flexible in your thinking is sometimes hard, but really important because the minute people don't feel like there's flexibility on the other side, they become defensive. And once you become defensive, then it's much harder to be happy. And it just goes on and on and on, as you know, from your, your um, patients too. And it's, you know, it's, it's sad to watch that happen. Yeah. Yeah. You're pointing to some core truths of healthy marriages, honesty, flexibility, good listening, some humor. The, the, the specific story that I love that Edie shared in, in the book that I just want to share with listeners is when you had young kids, you had decided that you each needed an independent night, a night to kind of do your own thing. And you had something scheduled. And then your husband, some famous economist was coming to town and he you know didn't wasn't able to wrangle a babysitter. And there was this beautiful moment where he sort of posed the issue to you and you said, oh, that's too bad. I guess you'll have to figure it out. You gave him a kiss and you went on your way and he figured it out. He took the kids with him, I think in their PJs. And I just, it was such a great example of, we often think in these very inflexible, rigid ways. It has to be either or, and we forget about the humor and levity component that can be so helpful. And I I just really love that, that being personified is, you know, these are really important qualities in a marriage. And the 
converse of, you know, having what Edie writes about is this low-level resentment that can be a hallmark feature of many marriages that we struggle with. Um, and so, you know, I and and I know that Edie, you sort of reflect back on your own marriage and, and see that you struggled with that yourself. And I wonder how can you use the lessons that you learned in your own marriage and and help people to sort of move to the other side of that? You know, I'm never when I was speaking in New Zealand in 1985, 2,800 people were there in the audience. And my late husband asked me, I'm a keynote speaker. What did you think about saying? And my answer was to him, I don't know until I say it. So, and that's the way I operate. I don't know what I'm going to, and I don't rehearse too much. I just rely, you know, 95 years, I've been all around the world, spoke a lot in many places, and I think people either want to be loved or they want to love, or they either have something what they don't want, or they want something what they don't have. So it's kind of making it simple. What's missing in your life? So the question I ask in Hungarian uh, that I translate, if I had a magic wand and I could give you anything, what would you have what you don't have now? And they tell me, I want to be happy. I don't know what to do with that word. (laughs) Who is happy? You tell me. Who is happy? You do the best you can. That's humanly possible. Yeah. Hand it over. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's good to get older and wiser, but not older than Sinai. And I like to be 95. The chronological age means nothing to me. Well, you're amazing for 95. So wait, I have to ask you a question. You don't prepare for like a TED Talk? You just kind of talk? Uh, whatever comes comes out and that's amazing look is wonderful yes i think it's good for people also to give up perfectionism because it can lead to procrastination yeah well you i remember you had a piece in your book where you talk about you know it's not courageous to strive for perfection it's courageous to be average and to embrace being average and yet, neither of you is average. <laughs> I think it takes courage to be average. Yeah. But how do you know? <laughs> you have to make an A-plus all the time. Well, and Marianne, what do you make of that, given that you're such an accomplished family? How do you sort of reconcile those two pieces of wisdom? <laughs> well, as usual, I have another version, right? <laughs> My mother doesn't prepare for a TED Talk the way you or I would, which is that I would really write things out. I would have point, 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 da, 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 da. So what happens is that we, meaning me and sometimes my sister or whatever, will sit with her and say, well, mom, what do you think is really important to say? So we'll have her free associate to us. And then we kind of organize it. And I know it goes straight into her head. And then she organizes it as she goes. So it's not that it just comes out of the, you know, atmosphere. It doesn't. But the way she processes her own information, we did the book that way, you know, is, is that she does best when she can kind of respond early and then reassess in her head and then out it comes. And, um, Katie, her assistant, sometimes will write out different points so that she can look at, oh, yeah, remember to talk about this, remember to talk about that. So so we, we have a strategy that works for her. So I don't want your listeners to feel like, oh, you just walk into any situation and here it comes. Because, frankly, if any of you are running businesses, that's not a good strategy. <laughs> Be prepared. Think about it ahead of time. But my mother does have this amazing ability to take things, rearrange them, and out they come. But, you know, most people don't. There is the thesis, 
there is the antithesis and then there is the synthesis. You yeah, take that, the polarities and you put them together. And that, that is the way her mind works. That's an art, not yeah. a science. Yeah. It's an art. That's that's and and I think this notion of being average, you know, there's average and there's average, right? What kind of average are we talking about? You know, in our household average is okay, so you made a B, B plus, I guess that's okay. Um <laughs> I mean, you know, it takes courage to be average. <laughs> but but I think there is this sense of, you know, be the best you can be. You know, this thing that parents tell kids of, you know, don't give up. Keep trying. If you need help, ask for help. You know, take it upon yourself to be who you really are. Um, don't let your telephone or what your friend think get in the way of you being the best you can be. I think those I think those principles are incredibly important and not everybody's gifted in writing or math or or science or whatever. And um, and so, you know, to to want that kid to get straight A's or whatever is I mean, I see it all the time. And and we, we have a we have a generation of, ex, of exhausted and anxious children which is not doing them any good. And my sports psychology, oh my God, the things parents do in the sports field is just actually dangerous for their kids. I'd like to tell you that when I was liberated, I didn't know how to write. And it took me months and months to try a capital G. And I'm telling you, it took me months and months to make a capital G that I could really, you see what happens when you are totally becoming this object and you are being objectified in a camp and you're told every day that the only way you will get out of here is a corpse and learn how not to allow anybody, anybody to define who you are. Because they could have put me in a gas chamber any minute, for sure. But they could never murder my spirit. And that's what hoping that you will have with this separation now and the Ukrainian... um, surprise that uh, is is really a way to being confronted whether you're going to be a survivor or a victim. I refuse to be a victim. I was victimized. It's not who I am. It's not my identity. It's what was done to me. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting and important take-home message that Nazis couldn't determine who you were, and also parents can't determine who our kids are, right? They're kind of far apart, I realize. But it's the same idea. We each get to decide for ourselves who we're going to be, how we're going to be, regardless of the messages that we get from anybody else. You know, there was a guy from Czechoslovakia, I'm told that he wanted to go to Vienna, but he didn't have any money for transportation. So he walked from Czechoslovakia to Vienna so he could take the test. And he was begging them to allow him to take a test because he was a Jew. And he was sitting next to Hitler under a different name. And he could never forgive himself that he passed the test and Hitler didn't. And he always thought if he wouldn't have passed the test, then Hitler wouldn't have uh, gone against the Jews. Lots of things, you know, that I remember from my past and hearing things that people somehow need to really think about their thinking and, uh, and see where you are today because the past is gone. There's one thing I cannot change is the past. Right. Let's talk a little bit about thinking about our thinking in terms of what you call your inner Nazi, right? It's sort of on the other side, right? 
you write, to stop bigotry means you start with yourself. So some, it's easy to look for the bigotry outside of us, but you write, you find the bigot in you. So how do we do that in a moment in history where, you know, we're seeing the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, we're seeing all sorts of bigotry here in the United States. How do we resist hating the haters and, and why should we? I was, I was asked my, my, my trainer to train another girl for the Olympics and I'm not qualified because I'm a Jew. And I immediately said to her, I'm not a Jew. You had to go, only you go to the city hall and when a child is born, you have your name and the religion. So I trained a Gentile girl because I was not allowed. And that's when I really felt the anti-Semitism that the first time I felt truly victimized. Yeah, so this was when you were training on the Olympic Committee in Hungary. Yeah. You know, genocide is what it is today, but never in the history of mankind such a scientific and systematic annihilation of people existed when they celebrated at the end of the day that they can put 30,000 Jews in the oven in one day. This is called the final decision of Eichmann, and I'm part of that final decision. Solution. So... I am a very proud Jew, and I tell you why. Because my ancestors were slaves, and they were liberated, and they found a guy called Moses, and they started to walk and walk and walk on a desert. My understanding, more than 40 years, and they never stopped. Never stopped. I carried that blood. I will never, ever stop. I'm still in the process, climbing that mountain, and I sleep and climb, and I never stop climbing. So I call it revolving or evolving. Well, I love that, because even as you tell the story, you're focused so much more on the pride in carrying your tradition, your history forward, than on hatred over other people who have committed unthinkable acts against Jews, right? And it's such a model. I think that's exactly the right takeaway, is that hatred, you know, if you hate the people who hate other people who hate other people, where do we get to? We get a lot of dead people, right? And and so I think it's perfectly fine. I think my mother thinks it's fine for you to talk about how illogical uh, some people are and and the effects of their thinking gets a lot of bad things to happen. But and you haven't said this, Mom, but I've heard you say it so many times, is that when you take in other people's hate, it weakens you. You know, it weakens you. And you become this other person. There's other things in you, but the best of you doesn't move forward and you really don't get the effects out of humanity that you would like. Um, and I think that's, that's the answer about hatred. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world that I, I think we all despise, but that doesn't mean that, you know, talking about hatred in a hateful way is going to make it any better. I'm going to send you this, okay? She's holding up a sheet, victim or survivor. It's hard for me to see all the text, but. There are the traits that are common in victims and or survivors. So you know what to focus on and what to. This is one of her latest things. It's really cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would be wonderful if you would send that. Yeah, and, and I think, Marianne, as you're talking, you know, and having read the books, and knowing the science that really defaulting to anger and hatred makes it hard for you to do the good work of surviving and overcoming 
And so it's like the Buddha is saying, like you, it's the hot coal of hatred. When you drop it, then you can move forward as opposed to holding on to it. You're the one that it burns, which as Marianne, as you're saying, it doesn't mean that we condone the horrible atrocities that people have committed, but rather that we learn to respond to them in ways that are, that feel more productive. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I never forget what happened. I don't overcome it. I came to terms with it. I think there is a difference. Because I remember when I went to have steak at Ruth's Steakhouse, I looked down and I was walking on cobblestones and it I triggered in me, it's a good word, triggered in me the time when children were spitting at us in Germany as we were walking and called us pigs and dogs and so on. So you never forget. You think you are, and then they are the triggers. When I go to Costco, I see the barbed wires, and Auschwitz comes up, and I know I have an American passport and so on. So don't try to forget. Just find a place where you know that you never gave up and you're a good role model because children don't they don't do what we say they do what they see yeah you're a good role model yeah well and i have sort of a maybe a twofold question for the two of you which is given that you guys have such a wonderful close mother daughter relationship that's you know clearly something that most of us really would look up to what is good advice for modern parents to think about as they're raising their own children and hoping to have close relationships with them through life. And then the second part of this question, because I know this is relevant for the book, but how does food fit into that for the two of you? I think you want to give up one word, shame. I, I was so ashamed that I spoke English with an accent. I felt that being different is inferior. So I went to school and I really didn't want to open my mouth because I didn't want my child to suffer that her mother doesn't speak English like any other kid's mother. And I think it was very important to to think about shame and then how we shame ourselves and also shame others. And uh, and uh, how does food get into your relationship? That's a very good question. Because Marianne wanted me to always cook American hamburgers because my Hungarian hamburgers had eggs in it and it had garlic in it and and uh, breadcrumbs in it. And vegetables in it. Oh, no, <laughs> but it was not. And she wanted American, everything. American hamburgers, American fried chicken. It's so funny. So you can probably tell from my name, but my, so my parents are Israeli and I have so many parallels with that, both in terms of my mom's shame about her accent, her embarrassment and her worry that it would sort of color the way that people saw our family and also about the food. (laughs) So my mother is an exquisite Hungarian cook, but her version of American food was, um, a different version than the stuff I was hoping for, (laughs) shall we say. But food has always been a great part of our lives. My father's family business had to do with taking the food from farmers and selling it out and bringing in coffee and selling coffee beans and all this. So um, one of the sweet things of my youth was going to the store with my father, and he really taught me how to to look at vegetables and, and all these things. Um, but the other thing is my father loved food cooked in a certain way. So his idea of a hamburger or meat, steaks, and all this stuff was not the American way. It was the Hungarian way. And some of that is delicious, and some of that was like, really? 
mom, you know. Um, so anyway, I became a cook and I wrote a food column for a while and all this. And we have a really good time in our family with the cooking. My mother would have one night a week that she would come to the house and cook and she would make these amazing meals. And, um, and I was, you know, inventing all these other recipes here and there. And so food has been a very important part of our lives. We, we love food. We love fresh food. We, 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 we were growing and going to farmer's markets and doing that long before it was, you know, the chic thing to do. Let me tell you about this. Monday night was my time to cook. And when I made the chicken paprika, my grandson maybe had second and thirds. And, uh, and I was watching that my daughter, his mother said, Jordan, I know you're going to college next year. Would you please sit in my lap? So he went over, plopped himself in her lap. So after dinner, I told him, what would it take for me, for you to sit in my lap? And his answer was, look pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) You do these things after you've had a good meal, right? (laughs) How much wine was in that chicken? (laughs) You know, so so one of the things that I I really wanted with the books, and that's why we added two extra chapters in. in She's responsible for the recipe. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so there's a bunch of recipes in the gift, including for chicken paprikash. Exactly. Um, exactly. So the first chapter is about COVID and how did we cope? And the second chapter is on love and food which I wrote and, and, you know, for us as a family f- food um, and, and my husband and I, we love to entertain and cook and he loves good wine. And, you know, that kind of atmosphere it, is so sweet in making relationships work with your friends, with your family, with your children. You know, I think it's important for kids to learn how to eat lots of different foods and to have family meals a lot. And so for this chapter, I took 17 recipes that were some were my mother, some were mine, some were some of her friends. I did a Hungarian series a while ago, and I got recipes from a lot of her friends. And so for this, I put some of those recipes in there. I redid them. So I really want to encourage all of you to buy that book and try the recipes and let me know how you like them because we really did work hard to make them easy to do and very, I I tried to explain them carefully so that it it wouldn't be a mystery about how to really make it taste good. And, and, you know, I just flew in from New York last night and I brought some fresh bagels that I bought yesterday for breakfast this morning for us. I mean, you know, it's really food. Food is love. It really is. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a way to connect, to celebrate and, and to sustain one another. I mean, you know, Edie, your experience in Auschwitz and and the other camps, you were starving, right? But you dreamt of food and it gave you a reason to kind of look forward and to connect with the other people who were suffering. And, and then, you know, you really needed that food to, to recover. And, and now it's a way to connect with family and to build traditions and celebration. And it, you know, there's so much that we take for granted around food. And I love that that is a, a main point of the book. One of the many gifts that we can look toward to, to really survive and thrive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a nice way of putting it. So I'm going to end with a quote from, from your book, from the gift that, and, and I'll just kind of read it out. Um, we can't take away suffering. We can't change what happened, but we can choose to find the gift in our lives. We can even learn to cherish the wound. And I just have to say, you know, the books, the, the choice and the gift are really should be required reading for anybody. <laughs> um, and I just want to thank you so much for your time and invite you to share with our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work, both of you. And I want to thank you, 
being a sabra, coming to Canada and, uh, and interviewing me. It's a day I will never forget as long as I live. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you. So my son manages her social media. So you should really go onto Facebook or Instagram. And he's also a photographer. So there's always a beautiful picture of her or the grandchildren with with what she has to say. And I think that's a, re- a really good way. And in the uh, book with the recipes, I actually have a uh, email address there for you to write to me and tell me how Beautiful. you did, how you liked them. Today I have three children, five grandchildren, and seven great-grandsons, and that's my best revenge to Hitler. That's right. And millions and millions of fans and people whose lives you've changed through your work and your wisdom and your willingness to, to meet people where they're at. So you're, you, you are both such a gift, and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. This was such an honor. You're thank a gift. You. You've, you've done, you're you've a, done a great job. Gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful relationship uh, with anyone that you interview because you're a wonderful interviewer. And so I want to congratulate you for choosing us. I want to do that, both professionals. Thank you. Hey, Psychologists Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode, that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.